Have you guys ever questioned a promise? If my dad were here, he just stepped out. He would testify to the fact that I have oftentimes questioned his promise. And I say something like, but you promised. Who knows how many times he's actually heard that throughout the course of my life, my brother's life, and my sister's life. Um, so the, the questioner, you know, might be asking the one who promised, you know, why is it taking so long for you to keep your promise? They could be questioning even the truthfulness of the one making the promise, the integrity of the one making the promise. But you promised it could also reveal a, a sort of impatience or let's say a weakness on the part of the one who received the promise, right? Maybe they're just impatient, just sitting around waiting. They think that the, that the promisor should fulfill the promise on their timetable as opposed to uh, the giver's timetable. Have you, if you have ever given the, but you promised, um, and if you've ever received it, you know that the way that you respond immediately after that, to let's say this child who comes to you with his heart hanging out of his chest, you know, but you promised, you know that what you say next impacts what he'll think of you for a very long time. Children are always trying to figure out, right, who they can really trust. Whose word will retain meaning? Whose character is filled with integrity? Now, if you say something like uh, something that dismisses the promise, you know, you say like, oh, you know what? I was just playing, you know, your kid. He's naturally going to think, oh, well, surely my parents words don't retain weight. I don't know if I should believe them. I never know when they're really just kidding, because at any time they can just sort of pull out the card and just saying I was just playing. But. If you say something that affirms your promise and encourages the child to believe that you will uphold your promise, even if it's not on their timetable, like their desired timetable, that child will hold fast to your word. That child will trust you. Not only that, that child will entrust himself or herself to you. So what you say in response to, but you promised, see, it affects a lot of things, doesn't it? In our passage today, in Genesis chapter 15, you can go ahead and turn there, we see something of this similar situation. God had promised a man named Abram, whom, as we walk along the text here, eventually we see that God gives him the name of Abraham. God had promised this man, Abram, that he would be the father of a nation, that lots of people would come from him. He had promised him that he would inherit a great land, and he had promised him that an offspring from his line would be a blessing to the nations. And like any child who receives a promise, a good promise, he eagerly anticipates its fulfillment, right? But unfortunately, we see Abram today, he questions uh, the promise. Borderline questioning God himself. He says, how will I know that I actually have the things that you promised? Show me, give me proof, give me assurance. So today as we look through the life of Abram, or at least part of it, I want us to be encouraged, just like Abram received a promise, so we receive promises from God too. We receive promises like deliverance, salvation, a current salvation, but also a salvation that arrives fully in the future. We receive promises of eternal life, rest eternal. We receive promises of an inheritance, a life in heaven where, there, where, where we will one day know no sin, 
know no pain, but God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he even promises that justice against evil will be met. He promises that Jesus will be exalted forever. I mean, there's so many promises, but we too wonder. I mean, some of you guys right now, you might be wondering, do I actually have what God has promised? How will I know? So as we see God's promises to Abram and how he answers his question, we can be assured that God's word has weight all the time and every word. He is to be trusted and we therefore can entrust ourselves to him. That's sort of like the main point of today's sermon that you should uh, take home. We can be assured that God's word has weight, that he is to be trusted and that we, in fact, can entrust ourselves to our good God. Um, so if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Genesis 15. This book was uh, written by a man named Moses who wrote the following four books as well. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he was writing these things as God's people were about to enter into the promised land. Now that's significant because what Moses here is holding out to are the promises, right? The promises of God to Abram. And he's writing these things to all of Israel. Genesis uh, 15 structure is pretty straightforward. Basically, it deals with two accounts. Section 1, verses 1 to 6. It concerns God's promise to Abram about offspring. And then we read there that Abram, he makes a plea or even a complaint to God regarding this promise. And then verses 7 to 21, the rest of the chapter, that's section 2. There it concerns God's promise about the land. And we see once again that Abram makes a plea to God and then... uh, a complaint to God a second time. So let's go ahead and look first at Abram's first plea of assurance. This is in verses one to six. Look here, God reveals himself and gives his promise here. Um, And as the chapter opens, we see that God reveals himself, giving his promise, reiterating it. Genesis 15, one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. So obviously you come across those words, these things, you got to say, well, what exactly are these things? Genesis 15 follows on the heels of Genesis 14. And what happened there is that Abram, he led a victorious night raid against these, this great king that eventually had come down and taken his nephew Lot away up north, like 125 miles plus away from where Abram was. And Abram being the, the man that he was, the dude who just got it done, He leads 300 plus men from his own household, train them in strategic military warfare. And he goes and does this night mission against them. He chases them literally, you know, 125 miles plus. And he brings back Lot, all of Sodom's possession. Sodom was a city and all of Sodom's people. So this great king, his name is Kedileomer. He goes down and he sort of destroys everybody. And he goes and, and he's trying to squash these rebellious kings, the king of Sodom being one of them. He destroys them. He gets all the people, all the possessions, Lot included, and he takes them away. And so Abram, he brings them back, being the, the godly, get-it-done man that he is. And when he comes back, he is blessed by the king of Salem, which we noted is most likely uh, Jerusalem. He's the king of Jerusalem. And this priest, Melchizedek, he comes out and he blesses Abram. Go ahead and look there in Genesis 14. Verse 19, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. 
But, you know, we read of this blessing, but keep in mind, okay, Abram owns no property in the promised land yet. Right? He leads this great night mission, but, and, and Melchizedek blesses him, but he owns nothing of the promised land. He has no child even. And in fact, Sarai, his wife, they're, they're still barren. So it seems like even though he's acting uh, and doing what God calls him to do, yet he stands there not having anything much in terms of the promises except for the promise itself and then you take lot for example the guy whom he just who who he just rescued right a guy who who is still in his kin i mean the next time we see lot he is back in sodom so he's rescued from ketoleomer but only to go back to sodom so chances are i mean abram standing here at the end of 14 may be a little bit discouraged he owns no promised land. He has no child. And this dude that he just rescued is probably going right back to the place where he was drawn to. That is Sodom, where the people were very wicked against the Lord. And so it's that sort of context that the word of God comes to him. Look there. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. You know, it's fitting that he says, do not fear. Because if you had just led a night raid against Ketelamer and, and his three pals, these great kings, chances are you're going to be looking over your shoulder, wondering when these guys are going to uh, make their next move, create their own counter-strike and go after Abram, who rescued Lot and took everything that they just grabbed. So God comes along and he says, fear not. And his answer is, I am your shield. It's very appropriate, especially since uh, given the stuff that we looked at yesterday, where Melchizedek says, blessed be Abram by God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Also can be translated the creator of heaven and earth, who not only creates, but he delivers your enemies into your hand. He is a God who is with them. And later on, as we see these two themes develop, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth and the God who delivers to Israel, this is very much a God. We just read various Psalms. And uh, this is very much as a God who is their keeper. Their God who is their shield. The God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, but protects and knows. And so God reminds Abram, I am your shield. He goes on and says, your reward shall be very great. Now, some of your guys' translations might read, um, I shall be your very great reward. A better translation actually is your or uh, your reward is very great. So like a king sort of bestowing on his top general who's just come back from battle, uh, a blessing, a reward. That's what's going on here. Abram had just conquered those guys and the king of Sodom comes out and Abram has all of Sodom's stuff with him. Keep in mind his people, his material possessions and lot. The king of Sodom comes out and he says, you give me the people, you take all the stuff, even though Abram has a right to all of it. And Abram, you know, knowing that God is going to build a kingdom on him, you know, he could have had the opportunity to just go ahead and grab the material goods and and begin building his kingdom, establishing his riches. But he says, no, he says, I have lifted up my hand. This is in Genesis 14, um, 22, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That is the God who delivers, the God who is a shield, the God who protects, who neither sleeps nor slumbers. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, 
I have made Abram rich. So he says, I don't want any of that because if if there's going to be any success, any deliverance that's going to come my way, I'm going to rely on God for that. So like the great general who's coming back to an even greater king, God says, look, I am your shield. Your reward shall be really great. I really am going to give you lots of stuff. So a better translation is that your reward shall be very great. But as he stands there with nothing, no real estate, no spoils of war, God brings him a word of hope. Great reward. Look at his look at Abram's response there. Verses two and three. But Abram said, this is his first plea. Oh, Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. Now, the reason why he says Eliezer is going to be his heir is because he has no biological heir. And so it was a legitimate practice then for a guy who had, a, who had stuff, you know, property and estate, to adopt a slave that was already in his house and say, look, you are going to continue on my legacy. I'm going to adopt you and all of this stuff is going to go to him. But he says, look, this is not, this is not great. This is not good. Eliezer is going to be my heir. I have no physical offspring to inherit my household. And what's even worse is where is Eliezer from? He's not even a Hebrew because that's Abram. Abram is the Hebrew. But here, Eliezer, not only is he not a physical son, he's Eliezer of Damascus. I mean, he's a Syrian. Not that that in and of itself is bad, but there he's just thinking, you know, not only do I have a physical son, but I have this... uh, person who's not a hebrew going to inherit my estate this is a big deal to abram isn't it i mean god comes you can imagine the scene great general comes to an even greater king and god says to him abram do not fear he just came back from that night mission where he did not fear but yet he's still fearing he says ah your reward shall be very great and then what's like the next word that abram says and it just reveals what's on his heart and what's on his mind right Your reward shall be very great, my dear Abram. Oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What are you going to give me? He says. This is a complaint here. You you sense almost the, the, the frustration and the flow of the passage. And he is unloading. You know, tell us what's really on your mind, Abram. He says, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he's met with, but what are you going to give me? Now we could read, we could read Abram's response here as sheer unbelief. But I think it's better to read just in light of chapter 15, what's going to come here. What it is, is he's more like the guy who says, I believe Jesus. I believe God help my unbelief. He's struggling to trust. It's not that he lacks trust. He's struggling to trust, even though his trust might not be, um, what God might want for him. But the very fact that childlessness is on his mind means that he's actually taking God's word seriously, doesn't it? He just doesn't quite know how to think well about it or think properly about it. And we understand Abram, don't we? We understand him. Abram here is, is judging by sight and he's recognizing that he and his wife, he's, they both stand there barren and they're recognizing that the fundamental purpose of their biological existence is over. There's no biological purpose 
anymore. It's done. He's discouraged. He says, what will you give me? Look at how God confirms his promise, though, in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. I think that's hilarious. Because if we wanted someone to inherit our estate, you know, we're going to be really careful whom we pass it on to, right? And we're going to be careful about who we choose because there's, you know, 300 plus men in his, in his estate and he chooses this one guy and God just comes along and says, no, nope, that's not going to work. That guy's not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. It's the first time that God mentioned that Abram is actually going to have a physical son, even though it's implied throughout. It's implied throughout that Abram and Sarai will have a son together. But then look what God does. Verse five, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You know, even though he lacks faith or at least lacks uh, an ideal trust and faith, you know, he doesn't like smack him around when he brings him outside. He's not going to take him to the sticks and give him a whooping. He brings him outside so that he would have this visual extravaganza. I mean, this is really an incredible situation here. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. So you can imagine Abram's discouraged. You know, he's sitting in his tent. He's a nomad. He's reviewing his life. You know, he's risking his life for these things. He left his family back from, uh, in Ur of the Chaldees to just go ahead and venture in this land where he is a foreigner there. And he's looking over his life and he's probably discouraged. What will you give me, God? Interesting question because he's been given so much already, right? God has given him the promises. People land blessing. Genesis 12. Then God had already given him a verbal reminder of the promises in Genesis 13. He reminds him. And then in Genesis 14, God had given him success and victory against the kings. God had given over his enemies into his very own hands. And he still asks what can you give me? So he doesn't shut him up in his struggles by God's grace. He doesn't shut him up. But he takes him outside. Come with me outside. Let me show you something. Look at how many stars you can see. You know, in Hacienda Heights, I've tried a number of times uh, to go in our backyard and just look up. But it's really hard to see this, the stars because of all the light around it. Um, but man, if you get to a place, we were in... in uh, in this desert area near San Diego for this retreat that I was speaking at. And my kids, they like looking at stars. So I took them outside. It was like 10 p.m. We can see just tons and tons and tons of stars. Beautiful experience. There's just so many of them. And that's part of what, what God is doing here. He said, look at the stars. So shall your offspring be. And even knowing that Abram can't count them, he says, try if you can. And you can imagine Abram trying to count, and he's like, oh, you know, 99, 100, 987, 998, and then he forgets where he is. I can't even count properly. Um, but it's more than just sheer number that he's getting at. It's more than just sheer number, although it is sheer number. It's more than just sheer number. What God is doing here is he's taking this Abram, dear Abram, whom he had created. He brings him outside of his tent to behold the rest of his creation. Right? He's bringing out one whom he has created to behold the rest of his creation. And he says, look at those stars that I flung into space. It's more than just sheer number. Very much so. The lesson being taught to Abram here is there is nothing 
too great for his God to accomplish. You see that? He's wanting him to have faith in God. Count them if you can. I created them and there are endless amounts of them. God is teaching Abram, nothing is too difficult for me. Now it's implicit here. It becomes explicit in Genesis 18 when they are really doubting God. So the theme is present. He says, God says, I will give you all of it. You know, as we seek to apply this passage to our lives, it ought to be noted that Abram doesn't really get the answer he expected. I don't think at least. What will you give me? He knows already that God will give him exactly what he promised. He just struggles to believe in God, the maker and the keeper of promises. And it's great that Abram is here for us today as an example, because he shows us that real life, Christian faith, the real walk of faith is a struggle. There is a struggle to trust God in the midst of it. And it's also great that he's here because we need to learn this same lesson as well. I mean, what is God's answer to Abram's turmoil? What is God's answer? He already knows it. He already said, uh, I mean, right here, okay. He says, you know, you go out and look at all the stars. Count them if you can. But in the previous chapter, he had already said, you know, you go ahead and walk the land. As much as there is dust on the earth, so shall your offspring be. He already got that message. What is God's answer to Abram's turmoil? More than the promise of a son specific. God's answer is found in God himself, which is why he says, I am your shield. God's word comes to Abram. And God's word is an extension of who he is. And that same word is, is the word that called him out of his pagan background in the pagan country there, Earl of the Chaldees. And then you have God's stars confirming God's promises. The answer that calms Abram's fear is not the answer to what will you give me? But it is in God himself. You know, in counseling situations, oftentimes the temptation is to ask questions like, why? Why did such and such happen? Um, but here, biblically, we see that very much so God is saying, look, the why, oftentimes you leave to me. But let me remind you of the who and the what. And that's how God answers this question here. So as we again, as we seek to apply this text to our lives and we come face to face with someone who may be discouraged, just like Abram, they know the promises of God that deliverance and salvation and forgiveness, freedom from pain, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt and shame. They all know that that's going to come logically. But their heart screams out, why? In this situation, the brothers and sisters realize that it is OK to say, I don't know. And God hasn't revealed that. Now, there is a lot that God has revealed and why questions in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. And we ought to answer them where we can. But there are many things that God simply hasn't answered, but he will one day. And in the midst of that, if there is genuine doubt and discouragement after we've sought to answer them accurately and biblically, we can legitimately say, brother and sister, I just don't know. But this is what I do know. That God is the maker of everything and God is the keeper and he is your shield. And even though it might be difficult, that God, your God, will show up and keep every single one of his promises. The difficulty is, is it doesn't come according to your schedule, but according to what God thinks is best. 
So here, as God leads him out, he gives him this visual extravaganza, right? A visual sign. And as he gazes up, beholds thousands and thousands of stars. What those stars do, this visible sign, what it does is confirm God's spoken promises. Theologians note, right, you have the spoken word confirmed by this visible sign. You have this visible, tangible sign that confirms the invisible promises of God, the promises that God had made in his covenant. Visible, tangible sign confirming the invisible promises of God. And that in and of itself is God's grace because he didn't need to give him this visible sign, but he goes ahead and gives it to him anyways. Remember, he meets Abram in his struggle for faith. It highlights God's grace, doesn't it? The promises came by God's grace. God meets Abram in his struggling faith by grace. God gives him this beautiful sign that confirms the promises by God's grace. And God counts Abram righteous by his grace. Look there in verse 6. There's all of this works to, to affirm and to assure Abram's faith. Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. God is the one who, who, who drew him out of Ur of the Chaldees, right? God is the one who, who, by his grace, gave him those promises. God is the one here who is meeting him by his grace as he struggles with faith. And God is the one who brings him out to behold the rest of his grandeur, his creation, that affirms his promises. And Abram says, I believe. He does something, but that is belief. He doesn't work for his salvation. He believes. He recognizes, wow, all of this is by God's grace. We learn a lot about Abram here, which is what I said we would as we study the life of Abram. But we learn so much about God here, that God is a gracious God. What's going on here is justification by faith. And what justification is, is a declaration that one is righteous, even though he stands as a sinner before a holy God. God says, Abram believed that I am it, that I do it all, and that I'm a gracious God who's going to deliver sinners. And God says, I count it to you as righteousness. He doesn't say he makes you internally righteous. As is, you know, if we are like a bank account of righteousness, and then as we, before we stand before the throne of God, we need to have all this deposits of righteousness, and we do that through baptism and the Lord's Supper. That is not what he is saying, which is what some people teach the roman catholic church being one of them they teach that faith plus your works bring you salvation but here i mean what what does it say abram believed god and then it was counted to him as righteousness we saw that in the new testament as well from romans chapter 4 which is exactly why uh we had oscar read that passage there the same exact theme and paul says you know he doesn't only go to uh, Jesus to get justification by faith alone through grace alone and Christ alone. He doesn't go back to, let's say, the prophets to get justification by faith alone. He goes all the way back to Abram. Genesis chapter 15 already we see justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now there, Abram is believing the promises that God had given him. Christ has not yet been mentioned. But yet he is trusting in God and God's promises there. Go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 4. Look at that passage again.
Now here Paul is writing to a group of folks who were tempted to believe that they could have salvation by works. Some folks were even tempted to say, oh, look, Abram was justified, that is declared righteous by his works. He was circumcised. But that's wrong. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh? That is, according to the law of God, particularly the law of circumcision, which we're going to get to. But you can just think law in general. For if Abram was ju- Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does it say? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted. That is credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. In other words, if you're a worker, you earn your wage. So if he is thinking, I'm going to go to go before God based on my works, that God responds rightly so, if that were possible to say, yes, you have worked. Therefore, I give you your wage. That's not grace. That's not a gift. Here, Paul's saying, look, salvation is by grace. He's not working, but he is believing. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. uh, This Abram believing in God and then being counted as righteousness is mentioned in Romans, is mentioned in Galatians, it's also mentioned in James. And each time, though, Abram is held out as a model of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But James, though, he's writing to the opposite crowd, folks who, who had intellectual assent of the truths of Jesus and salvation, but they didn't really care much to actually do anything that Jesus commanded. James says that's no faith at all. He says, you want to look at Abraham? You look at Abraham. He was justified by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness, but his faith wasn't alone. It was accompanied by works. And it was because he believed that he therefore followed God and eventually was circumcised. And so he's sort of proving his justification. He's proving that he actually believes. He believes that God is it. God is the God who saves and that he therefore is to act in the faith that God gives him. So there, that's the first section. Abraham's first, Abram's first plea. Let's move on to Abram's second plea of assurance. Verse 7, here God reveals himself and gives a, his promise again. This is back in Genesis 15. God says, I am the Lord. Very appropriate. I mean, that phrase begins the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord. It's all about him. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So that's a reiteration of the promise. It's a reminder there. The first one, the first uh, plea from verses one to six, the issue of the promise that had to do that had to do with offspring. Here it has to do with land. Here's Abram's plea in verse eight. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess how am, I shall, how am I to know that I shall possess it? First plea is, what will you give me? Second plea is, how am I to know? God then reveals himself again and confirms his promise in verses 9 to 21. Now, before we get to that, this ceremony might seem really strange to us. But it is, it is really important for us to understand what the ceremony is. This is where God cuts a covenant with Abram. 
And you, you guys know generally what this is like. You know, you know what it means to have a covenant in blood. You know, maybe you, when you were a kid, you would prick your fingers and then, you know, and then you're sealed by blood. You're bonded by blood to fulfill your promise to, I don't know, get married if you don't find a spouse by the time you're 80 um, or whatever. Or maybe you spit in your hands and then you shake. It's basically the same thing here. He's making a covenant, a promise bound by blood. Uh, so 9 to 11 Abram prepares the animals for the ceremony. We're just summarizing here. 12 to 16, God brings his word to Abram again. And then 17 to 21, the covenant is made official. So I'll just go ahead and read that whole entire section here from 9 to 21. He said to him, that is God, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On the day the Lord on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the land of the Kenites the Kenizzites the Cadmonites the Hittites the Perizzites the Rephaim the Amorites the Canaanites the Girgashites and the Jebusites So here let me just explain the covenant this was a ceremony between two parties where both parties would establish or cut a covenant. That's the formal language, to cut a covenant. And what would happen is that these animals would be brought. So here, you know, you got a heifer, you got a she-goat, uh, you got a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. Uh, interestingly, when God writes out the law and gives his law to Moses in Israel, these would be the very sacrificial, sacrificial animals that God prescribes. But, you know, he hasn't laid out his, uh, the law yet. So, so Abram brings these, these animals and he cuts them in half and then he lays them facing each other. And so you can imagine that all the animals would be sort of formed this way, bleeding, you know, there's a lot of blood, and then they would form a pathway in between. And if I were to make a covenant, let's say with Robert, me and him would walk through the pieces and through the blood. That, that would be the covenant made with a bond of blood. And basically, in effect, when we would walk through the pathway, through the blood, we would more or less be saying, look, if I fail to keep the end of my promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May my body be torn apart and may my blood be spilled. That's how serious this covenant is. Um, so uh, people call this a self-curse. You know, when we're walking through the pieces, me and Robert would be saying, we, may the fate of those animals happen to us if we fail to keep our covenant, the end of the promise. It's a self-curse. We see this being played out in Jeremiah 34. This is a good example. Go ahead and turn there. Jeremiah 
here, Israel, they had made a covenant with God, but they had backed up from it. And they are in trouble, and God is not happy. This is a serious thing when people make a covenant. And you see this language of self-curse as they walk between the pieces. You know, may their fate happen to us. Look at verse 17 of chapter 34 of Jeremiah. Therefore, says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. So a covenant has been established. They haven't kept their end of it. He says, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the land of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Um, So here you see it being played out here. What's going on in Genesis chapter 15. They're calling a curse. um, Or people would call a curse as they establish this covenant bonded in blood. But there are some things different between what happens in Jeremiah and what happens in Genesis 15. Okay, so back to Genesis 15. In Jeremiah, who walked between the pieces? It's the people, the priests, the eunuchs, everybody else. They're the one who walked between the cut pieces and through the blood. But in Genesis 15, who walks through the pieces? It's God. Therefore, who's the one who is calling upon himself this self-curse? If people don't keep the end of the promise, it's God himself. It's not Abram. Look at verse 15, sorry, verse 17 in chapter 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. There's no mention of Abram, only the mention of God. I don't know why God chooses a smoking pot. Um, Not smoking pot, but a smoking pot. And a flaming torch to pass between the pieces. But we do know that later on, uh, smoke and fire, they would come to symbolize God's presence. And and I think that's what we see here. Here, the the smoking pot and the fire, as they're passing between the pieces and the blood, it's a manifestation of God's presence. I mean, imagine Abram. He knows how to make a covenant. Imagine Abram, uh, you know, cutting the animals, laying them face to face, establishing this path. The blood is dripping. He sees the smoking fire pot and the fire go past it and he's getting ready to go too. But God says, no, don't go through the, the, the blood. I will go through the blood. I got this. You want to know if I'm going to fulfill my promises? Even though you struggle with your, with, to believe in me, the God, the giver and keeper of promises. He says, I got this. And I'm going to make a covenant with you bound by blood naturally the question comes to mind is so what does it mean to for god to in effect say if i fail to keep my end of the promise and your end of the promise may i be torn to pieces like this animal right i said that this i said that this uh ceremony would be a little strange right but what's more strange than the blood and the pieces is the very fact that God is the one who is calling down the curses on himself. 
That's what's strange above all else. That makes this covenant, this ceremony hard to understand, right? Again, we understand blood oaths. But what does it mean for God to take on the consequences earned by the party that did, in fact, fail when he never fails? The sinner, though he or she fails, still receives the benefits of the covenant. But God takes on the consequences earned by the sinner. That's grace that undergirds the gospel, is it not? And the clearest way that God makes this known or displayed is through his son, Jesus Christ. It says that he became a curse for us, even though we were the ones who sinned, right? Even though Abram's children, that is those who have faith, faith like Abram the father, who would have a faith like his, even though they are the sinners, God still keeps his covenant with them, even though they deserved and rightfully earned the consequences of breaking the covenant, yet God still gives him, give them the blessings of the covenant. The curses that they rightly earned, God brings upon himself in Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life. God the Son came, lived a perfect life, took on the sin that we deserved and the wrath that we deserved. And when he died on the cross, his body was torn in two, so to speak, and his blood was certainly spilled. That's God calling down the covenant curses on himself to ensure that his promises will always stand and that they would be accomplished. Here in Genesis 15, God had cut a covenant with Abram. And even though he did it, he planned as he knew in the future that the covenant blessings would be with every single rebellious sinner who turns from their sin and believes on Jesus. How's that for a sign, right? That God keeps his promises. God had promised forgiveness to wipe away sins. He had promised salvation. He had promised adoption. He had promised us a new heart. And so Jesus dying on the cross for sins and then being raised from the dead, showing that payment has been paid, not only confirms the promise, but is the very fulfillment of the promise. God himself is the answer, right? How will I know? God says, I give you myself. He brings out Abram, behold, the stars in the heavens, a great sign confirming the promise. But to have the Lord of the heavens. Take on flesh to become a curse for us. To have his body torn and his body spilled, his blood spilled when it should have been ours. I mean, how's that for confirmation? That's confirmation because it is fulfillment. Christ dying on the cross was the greatest confirmation for the promises of salvation because it was fulfillment. It's no wonder that all the signs that Jesus gives the church They all point back to Jesus dying on the cross and then being raised again to new life. So just as just as Abram was given this visual extravaganza to confirm God's promise. So we, too, as Christians are given signs. To confirm a spiritual inward reality, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two visible signs that we have here. You take baptism, right? It's a visible sign of an inward spiritual reality that those of us who have been united to Jesus Christ, we die with him in the death of sin, and then we are raised with him in his new life. So we live a new life. We go down under the water, symbolizing 
that we have been buried with him and we are raised up from the water, symbolizing that we have been raised to new life, resurrection to new life. That's the sign that we see. Every time someone gets baptized here, we say, wow, look at that. A promise has been made. God has saved that sinner. And this is a picture that confirms the inward reality. You take the Lord's Supper, for example, another visible sign where we are physically eating bread and then also the fruit of the vine, the spiritual realities that our sins have actually been forgiven through the spilling of Jesus's blood and through the breaking of his body. And in celebrating the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. Right? Just like Abram, every time we practice the Lord's Supper, which starting in August will be the first Sunday of every month, um, we're invited to this visual extravaganza. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are God's visible signs that confirm or point back to the reality of God's promise and fulfillment of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's funny that the church downplays these things, right? The church nowadays, the church in general, they oftentimes have baptism as an added option for the Christian. You know, if you feel, you know, so led to be baptized, hey, why don't you go ahead and be baptized? As if it's like a, a, an added option that you might take, maybe you don't. But according to the Bible, Jesus says you repent and be baptized. And so very naturally we see before people are joining the church, they are being baptized. And then it says in the book of Acts, then they are added to the number. Uh, and that's a command of Jesus. So we don't want to downplay it, but we want to upplay it, given that these are visible extravaganzas for us to see. God makes and keeps his promises to sinners. Let me speak to you if you are a non-Christian visiting with us today. Maybe you're checking out Christianity. Maybe you understand logically that there are promises here in the, in the Bible and in the gospel. And you yourself want assurance. You want to know, is this really real? You can find your answer in God himself and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what God was doing as he gave us his son. That's assurance. If you want to know the realities, whether or not God exists, whether or not he actually keeps his promises, whether or not you can believe him, whether or not, he's tr- whether or not he, you can put your trust in him, whether or not you can entrust yourself to him, you just have to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the word of God that speaks about the gospel. And we see there that this blood oath points directly to Jesus Christ who calls down the curses that we ourselves deserved and he gives you the benefits of salvation if you would in fact repent of your sins and believe on him for salvation. We should follow Abram's example. He turned from his pagan background to embrace God and follow him according to his word. So speaking to everybody here, non-Christian or Christian, if you have ever asked, how can I know? We can be assured also by looking at these covenants. One pastor named uh, Ligon Duncan, he wrote this. The covenants are God's answer to the question of our hearts. How can I know? He goes on to say, why are we Protestants who believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? In Christ alone, by grace alone. That is, we can be saved by no work of our own, but only because of the grace of God through faith in Christ. He says, how can we be so confident that believers in this life can be assured of their salvation? He says, not because we're such wonderful people, but because of the promises of the covenants, because of what God has done on our behalf. 
This covenant finds its fulfillment in Jesus, as Jesus would be the one who is the offspring that is the blessing to the nations. And the reason why he is a blessing is because it is his blood alone that can actually save men from every nation if they would repent and believe. Well, God would remain true to his promises. Look there in verse 12. It's not according to Abram's timeline, that's for sure. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. He's speaking of Egypt here. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That basically means when you die, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here they're supposed to sojourn in Egypt 400 years. It's ironic, isn't it, that the nation that Abram tried to so desperately fold into, that is Egypt, as we saw in Genesis chapter 13, God says that that very nation would rule over his offspring for 400 years. Also known as four, four generations because the average lifestyle, life span is 100 years. But they wouldn't leave there empty, right? God would still continue to deliver them and never abandon his promises. He would give them lots of possessions, just like he had already given Abram lots of possessions when the first time when he went down to Egypt. But God says that they must wait. Not according to their timeline, but according to God's timeline. Even with dealing in, with Abram there in the future Israelites, God there is making sure that he's going to deliver his people. He's going to establish a nation. And one from Abram's line is going to be their blessing. He's also administering justice there. Going to deal with the Amorites at just the right time. Why 400 years? Because the wickedness and the sins of the Amorites hadn't arisen um, to the point where God was going to judge them it's not that he turns a blind eye he in fact will carry out his judgment but at the right time now we look at that later but next week we'll see further how abram does living in the reality of god's promises that he would have a child of his own and we see unfortunately that this is a man who is a sinner just like us and for that we are fortunate because he is an example for us to turn again and again to god Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that the answer that we need that settles all fears and roots us deep in your promises is ultimately you. And we thank you, Lord, that once again, not a, it is you certainly, but it is also your promises as your promises are an extension of who you are, just as you are faithful so we can trust your promises. Father in heaven, we confess that oftentimes we live um, in a struggle of faith and we live by sight and not by faith. But we pray, Lord, that we would know that you are it. That if anyone is going to deliver us and to give us the blessings of the covenant, it's not going to be us and the things that we do, but it's going to be you. Just as Abram 
was brought out just as you brought him out to see this visible sign of all the stars that you have created. So we pray, Lord, in the midst of our faltering faith that you would bring us back to Jesus, the confirmation of promises and the fulfillment of all of them. In your name we pray. Amen.